Hi, and welcome to another episode of A Shot Glass of Recovery with your host, Julie, half of the dynamic duo that brings you the podcast, Two Sober Chicks. Hello, beloveds. I am not good today. I don't know what's going on. I'm not sure what I'm going to say, but my backup is always story hour. Uh, Yesterday I was feeling off. I was watching some like (laughs) far right wing stuff and it gave me a lot of anxiety. And then I think it was all just downhill from there. (laughs) Actually, it was the day before. And then yesterday I woke up and I was talking about it with my husband, what I had learned and um, how it actually scared me and how when I started to feel afraid, I heard in my spirit, God say, fear not. Fear not, by the way, is the most said thing in the Bible by like a long shot. God says, fear not more than anything else. And I heard that in my spirit and I was like, okay, I'm going to be okay. And then the next morning I was reading scripture with my uh, husband to my husband. We do that sort of most days. And, um, as I'm reading it, I'm just overwhelmed with anxiety and I'm like on FaceTime with him. And I said, oh my God, I think I'm going to barf. I could tell it was coming, but most of the time I can stave it off. So it feels like I'm going to throw up. I feel like my pupils are super dilated and I start to get this tingly feeling like right under my earlobe and down into my neck. (laughs) So I run off screen. I don't end the call. I'm throwing up in the toilet and I can hear my sweet husband in the background going, it's okay, Angel, you're safe. I'm right here. It's okay. And I can hear him going, damn it, I wish I was there. Like he was just so sweet. And then I came back and just kept reading scripture scripture and he's like hang on a minute do you need to like take a minute and I'm I said no it's an expenditure of energy so as long as I let it out and I don't resist it and I just go with it I'm fine it's like crying once the the expulsion of the buildup of energy is out I'm fine anyways um Then I went to church. Pastor spoke about Revelation. There was so much I didn't have any idea about. I spent all of yesterday researching Revelation. I'm getting to the point. And then today in the weekly staff meeting, I shared my having anxiety and throwing up and scripture and what I learned and things that happened. And I just felt embarrassed and ashamed when I left that meeting. And I think I know what it's about. Um, it's about being vulnerable and maybe people thinking, I don't know enough to be there. Um, I'm too dramatic. I may have offended pastor by saying I th- he mentioned that no one else had thrown up after his sermon. And so maybe I embarrassed him. Maybe he's like disappointed in me. Maybe he's going to tell me that I shouldn't be a pastoral residence without more knowledge or without more self-control. Oh, there it is right there. I can feel that. And so this is something that I have to work on. Usually when this happens, and I know if you've listened to when I was being interviewed for my pastoral residency, I felt the same amount of shame and guilt after my interview because I felt like I said too much. I wasn't controlled enough. Maybe I said something to make him think I wasn't suitable enough or mature enough or smart enough or gifted enough. And usually what comes into my head are two things. Were you honest? Did you tell the truth? The answer is yes. Was I myself? I was a heightened version of myself, but I'm just kind of that way. Sometimes I'm calm. Sometimes I'm hyper. And so it's just sinking into acceptance that 
both of those things are true. And yes, my sponsor tells me I can give a general idea without giving specifics, but I'm just not like that. I am like a leaky faucet when it comes to talking about myself, my feelings, and my experiences. So I'm feeling really gross and awful today. That happened this morning. And uh, I decided that I wasn't going to study for my courses or do anything heavy. And I was just going to embroider while uh, I just binge watch Modern Family in the background because it makes me laugh. And then I thought, well, let's do a podcast. So there are several things that I have wanted to talk about. But we're going to refer to some other things just in case there's little gems of goodness. Let's look at September 8th in language or letting go, language of letting go. I'm not loving this book lately. Okay, there's some daily readings I get in my email that I thought were really good. Uh, where's my buddy Richard Rohr? True self, separate, separate self. We talked about that earlier this week. Restorative love. Let's see what that says. No, I'm actually going to have Amanda on to talk about this, how our higher powers evolve through recovery. Making amends? Let's just read a story. I'm grumpy. Okay. So last time we read this story, our southern friend, probably painfully painful for you to get through that whole thing because I was very distracted. But let's read another story, shall we? And thanks for letting me share, by the way. The Vicious Cycle. This is story five on page 219 of the big book. How it finally broke a Southerner's, I love Southerners, obstinacy and destined this salesman to start AA in Philadelphia. January 8th, 1938. That was my D-Day. The place, Washington, D.C. This last real merry-go-round had started the day before Christmas, and I had really accomplished a lot in those 14 days. First, my new wife had walked out, bag baggage and furniture. My husband says Canadians say bag, beg. I wonder if I just said it that way. Then the apartment landlord had thrown me out of the empty apartment and the finish was the loss of another job. After a couple of days in dollar hotels and one night in the pokey, I don't know what that is, I finally landed on my mother's doorstep shaking apart with several days beard and of course broke as usual. I need to know what pokey means or I will not be able to concentrate. Not like I do a great job of that on this anyways. Pokey. Oh, it's prison. Huh. Okay. So we spent a night in the pokey. You do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself about. Ah, many of these same things had happened to me many times before, but this time they had all descended together. For me, this was it. Here I was, 39 years old and a complete washout. Nothing had worked. Mother would take me in only if I stayed locked in a small storeroom and gave her my clothes and shoes. Whoa, we had played this game before. That is the way Jackie found me lying on a cot in my skivvies with hot and cold sweats, pounding heart, and that awful itchy scratchiness all over. Somehow, I had always managed to avoid DTs. I seriously doubt I ever would have asked for help, but Fitz, an old school school friend of mine, had persuaded Jackie to call on me. Had he come two or three days later, I think I would have thrown him out, but he hit when I was open for anything. 
Jackie arrived about 7 in the evening and talked until 3 a.m. I don't remember much of what he said, but I did realize that here was another guy exactly like me. He had been in the same laughing academies and the same jails, known the same loss of jobs, same frustrations, same boredom, and the same loneliness. If anything, he had known all of them even better and more often than I. Yet he was happy, relaxed, confident, and laughing. That night, for the first time in my life, I really let down my hair and admitted my general loneliness. Jackie told me about a group of fellows in New York, of whom my old friend Fitz was one, who had the same problem I had, and who, by working together to help each other, were now not drinking and were happy like himself. He said something about God or a higher power, but I brushed that off. That was for the birds, not for me. Little more of our talk stayed in my memory, but I do know I slept the rest of the night while before I had never known what a real night's sleep was. This was my introduction to this understanding fellowship, although it was to be more than a year later before our society was to bear the name Alcoholics Anonymous. All of us in AA know the tremendous happiness that is our sobriety, but there are also tragedies. My sponsor, Jackie, was one of these. He brought in many of our original members, yet he himself could not make it and died of alcoholism. The lesson of his death still remains with me, yet I often wonder what would have happened if somebody else had made that first call on me. So I always say that as long as I remember January 8, that is how long I will remain sober. The age-old question in AA is which came first, the neurosis or the alcoholism? I like to think I was fairly normal before alcohol took over. My early life was spent in Baltimore, where my father was a physician and a grain merchant. My family lived in very prosperous circumstances, and while both my parents drank, sometimes too much, neither was an alcoholic. Father was a very well-integrated person, and while mother was high-strung and a bit selfish and demanding, oh, hi, mom, our home life was reasonably harmonious. There were four of us children, and although both of my brothers later became alcoholic, one died of alcoholism. My sister has never taken a drink in her life. Until I was 13, I attended public schools with regular promotions and average grades. I've never shown any particular talents, nor have I had really frustrating ambitions. At 13, I was packed off to a very fine Protestant boarding school in Virginia, where I stayed four years, graduating without any special achievements. In sports, I made the track and tennis teams. I got along well with the other boys and had a fairly large circle of acquaintances, but no intimate friends. I was never homesick and was always pretty self-sufficient. However, here I probably took my first step toward my coming alcoholism by developing a terrific aversion to all churches and established religions. At this school, we had Bible readings before each meal and church services four times on Sunday, and I became so rebellious at this that I swear I would never join any church or go to any except for weddings or for funerals. At 17, I entered the university ready to satisfy my father who wanted me to study medicine there as he had. That is where I had my first drink, and I still remember it. I just highlighted this next sentence. I mean, the next sentence is highlighted. 
for every first drink afterwards did exactly the same trick. I could feel it go right through every bit of my body and down to my very toes. But each drink after the first seemed to become less effective, and after three or four, they all seemed like water. I was never a hilarious drunk. The more I drank, the quieter I got, and the drunker I got, the harder I fought to stay sober. So it is clear that I never had any fun out of drinking. I highlighted this next one too. I would be the soberest seeming one in the crowd, and all of a sudden, I would be the drunkest. Even that first night, I blacked out, which leads me to believe that I was an alcoholic from my very first drink. The first year in college, I just got by in my studies. I majored in poker and drinking. I refused to join any fraternity as I wanted to be a freelance. And that year, my drinking was confined to one night stands once or twice a week. The second year, my drinking was more or less restricted to weekends, but I was nearly kicked out for scholastic failure. In the spring of 1917, in order to beat being fired from school, I became patriotic and joined the army. I am one of the lads who came out of the service with a lower rank than when I went in. I had been to OTC the previous summer. Don't know what that is, but it's probably a training camp. So I went into the army as a sergeant, but I came out a private, and you really have to be unusual to do that. In the next two years, I washed more pans and peeled more potatoes than any other doughboy. In the army, I became a periodic alcoholic, the periods always coming whenever I could make the opportunity. However, I did manage to keep out of the guardhouse. My last bout in the army lasted from November 5 to 11, 1918. We heard by wireless on the 5th that the armistice would be signed the next day. This was a premature report. So I had a couple of cognacs to celebrate. Then I hopped a truck and went AWOL. My next conscious memory was in Bar-le-Duc, many miles from base. It was November 11th, and bells were ringing, and whistles blowing for the real armistice. There I was, unshaven, clothes torn and dirty, with no recollection of wandering all over France. But, of course, a hero to the local French. Back at camp, all was forgiven because it was the end. But in the light of what I have since learned... I know I was a confirmed alcoholic at 19. With the war over and back in Baltimore with the folks, I had several small jobs for three years, and then I went to work soliciting as one of the first 10 employees of a new national finance company. What an opportunity I shot to pieces there. This company now does a volume of over $3 billion annually. Three years later, at 25, I opened and operated their Philadelphia office and was earning more than I ever had. I was the fair-haired boy, all right, but two years later, I was blacklisted as an irresponsible drunk. It doesn't take long. My next job was in sales promotion for an oil company in Mississippi, where I promptly became high man and got lots of pats on the back. Then I turned two company cars over in a short time and bingo, fired again. Oddly enough, the big shot who en- who fired me from the company was one of the first men I met when I later joined the New York AA group. He had also gone all the way through the ringer and had been dry two years when I saw him again. After the oil job blew up, I went back to Baltimore and mother, my first wife, having said a permanent goodbye. Oh, after the old job blew up, I went back to Baltimore and mother, my first wife having said a permanent goodbye. 
then came a sales job with a national tire company. I reorganized their city sales policy, and 18 months later, when I was 30, they offered me the branch managership. As part of this promotion, they sent me to their national convention in Atlantic City to tell the big wheels how I'd done it. At this time, I was holding what drinking I did down to weekends, but I hadn't had a drink at all in a month. I checked into my hotel room and then noticed a placard tucked under the glass on the bureau stating there will be positively no drinking at this convention, signed by the president of the company. That did it. Who? Me? The big shot? The only salesman invited to talk at the convention? The man who was someday going to take over one of their biggest branches come Monday? I'd show him who was boss. No one in that company saw me again. Ten days later, I wired my resignation. As long as things were tough and the job a challenge, I could always manage to hold on pretty well. But as soon as I learned the combination, got the puzzle under control, and the boss to pat me on the back, I was gone again. Routine jobs bored me, but I would take on the toughest one I could find and work day and night until I had it under control. Then it would become tedious and I'd lose all interest in it. I could never be bothered with the follow-through and would invariably reward myself for my efforts with that first drink. After the tire job came the 30s, the depression, and the downhill road. In the eight years before AA found me, I had over 40 jobs, selling and traveling, one thing after another in the same old routine. I'd work like mad for three or four weeks without a single drink, save my money, pay a few bills, and then reward myself with alcohol. Then I'd be broke again, hiding out in cheap hotels all over the country, having one-night jail stands here and there in the pokey. And always that horrible feeling. What's the use? Nothing is worthwhile. Every time I blacked out, and that was every time I drank, there was always that gnawing fear. What did I do this time? Once I found out. Many alcoholics have learned they can bring their bottle to a cheap movie theater and drink, sleep, wake up, and drink again in the darkness. I had repaired to one of these one morning with my jug, and when I left late in the afternoon, I picked up a newspaper on the way home. Imagine my surprise when I read in a page one box that I had been taken from the theater unconscious around noon that day, removed by ambulance to a hospital, and stomach pumped, and then released. Evidently, I had gone right back to the movie with a bottle, stayed there several hours, and started home with no recollection of what had happened. The mental state of the sick alcoholic is beyond description. I had no resentments against individuals. The whole world was all wrong. My thoughts went round and round with, what's it all about anyhow? People have wars and kill each other. They struggle and cut each other's throat for success. And what does anyone get out of it? Haven't I been successful? Haven't I accomplished extraordinary things in business? What do I get out of it? Everything's all wrong and the hell with it. For the last two years of my drinking, I prayed during every drunk that I wouldn't wake up again. Three months before I met Jackie, I had made my second feeble try at suicide. This was the background that made me willing to listen on January 8th. After being dry two weeks and sticking close to Jackie, all of a sudden I found I had become the sponsor of my sponsor, for he was suddenly taken drunk. 
I was startled to learn he had only been off the booze a month or so himself when he brought me the message. However, I made an SOS call to the New York group whom I hadn't met yet, and they suggested we both come there. This we did the next day, and what a trip. I really had a chance to see myself from a non-drinking point of view. We checked into the home of Hank, the man who had fired me 11 years before in Mississippi, and there I met Bill, our founder. Oh my god, that's so cool. Bill had then been dry three years, and Hank too. At the time, I thought them just a swell pair of of screwballs, for they were not only going to save all the drunks in the world, but also all the so-called normal people. All they talked of that first weekend was God and how they were going to straighten out Jackie's and my life. In those days, we really took each other's inventories firmly and often. Despite all this, I did like these new friends because, again, they were like me. They had also been periodic big shots who had goofed out repeatedly at the wrong time. And they also knew how to split one paper match into three separate matches. This is very useful knowledge in places where matches are prohibited. They too had taken a train to one town and wakened hundreds of miles in the opposite direction, never knowing how they got there. The same old routine seemed to be common to us all. During that first weekend, I decided to stay in New York and take all they gave out except the God stuff. I knew they needed to straighten out their drinking and habits, but I was all right. I just drank too much. Just give me a good front and a couple of bucks and I'd be right back in the big time. I'd been dry three weeks, had the wrinkles out, and had sobered up my sponsor all by myself. Bill and Hank had just taken over a small automobile polish company and they offered me a job. $10 a week, and keep at Hank's house. We were all set to put DuPont out of business. At that time, the group in New York was composed of about 12 men who were working on the principle of every drunk for himself. We had no real formula and no name. We would follow one man's ideas for a while, decide he was wrong, and switch to another's method. Oh my god. (laughs) But we were staying sober as long as we kept and talked together. There was one meeting a week at Bill's home in Brooklyn, and we all took turns there spouting off how much we had changed our lives overnight, how many drunks we had saved and straightened out, and last but not least, how God had touched each of us personally on the shoulder. Boy, what a circle of confused idealists. Yet we were Yet we all had one really sincere purpose in our hearts, and that was not to drink. At our weekly meeting, I was a menace to serenity those first few months. For I took every opportunity to lambaste that spiritual angle, as we called it, or anything else that had any tinge of theology. Much later, I discovered the elders had held many prayer meetings, hoping to find a way to give me the heave-ho, but at the same time stay tolerant and spiritual. They did not seem to be getting an answer for here I was staying sober and selling lots of auto polish on which they were making 1000% profit. So I rocked along my merry independent way until June when I went out selling auto polish in New England. After a very good week, two of my customers took me to lunch on Saturday. We ordered sandwiches and one man said three beers. I let mine sit. After a bit, the other man said three beers. I let that sit too. Then it was my turn. I ordered three beers. But this time, it was different. 
I had a cash investment of 30 cents, and on a $10 a week salary, that's a big thing. So I drank all three beers, one after the other, and said, I'll be seeing you boys, and went around the corner for a bottle. I never saw either of them again. I had completely forgotten the January 8 when I found the fellowship, and I spent the next four days wandering around New England half drunk, by which I mean I couldn't get drunk and I couldn't get sober. I tried to contact the boys in New York, but telegrams bounced right back, and when I finally got Hank on the telephone, he fired me right then. This was when I really took my first good look at myself. My loneliness was worse than it had ever been before, for now even my own kind had turned against me. This time it really hurt, more than any hangover ever had. My brilliant agnosticism vanished, and I saw for the first time that those who really believed, or at least honestly tried to find a power greater than themselves, were much more composed and contented than I had ever been. And they seemed to have a degree of happiness I had never known. Peddling off my polished samples for expenses, I crawled back to New York a few days later in a very chastened frame of mind. When the others saw my altered attitude, they took me back in. But for me, they had to make it tough. If they hadn't, I don't think I ever would have stuck it out. Once again, there was the challenge of a tough job, but this time I was determined to follow through. For a long time, the only higher power I could concede was the power of the group. That's what I did at first do. But this was far more than I had ever recognized before, and it was at least a beginning. It was also an ending, for never since June 16, 1938, have I had to walk alone. Around this time, our big AA book was being written, thank God, and it all became much simpler. We had a definite formula that some 60 of us agreed was the middle course for all alcoholics who wanted sobriety. That is very interesting. That means there was a highly, according to my own opinion, a middle course means there was the very religious and there was the atheist or agnostic. And that our version of AA today is somewhere down the middle. Middle course for all alcoholics who wanted sobriety, and that formula has not been changed one iota down through the years. I don't think the boys were completely convinced of my personality change, for they fought shy of including my story in the book. So my only contribution to their literary efforts was my firm conviction, since I was still a theological rebel, that the word God should be qualified with the phrase, as we understand him. Wow, this is the dude that did that? for that was the only way I could accept spirituality. After the book appeared, we all became very busy in our efforts to save all and sundry, but I was still actually on the fringes of AA. While I went along with all that was done and attended the meetings, I never took an active job of leadership until February 1940. Then I got a very good position in Philadelphia and quickly found I would need a few fellow alcoholics around me if I was to stay sober. Thus, I found myself in the middle of a brand new group. When I started to tell the boys how we did it in New York and all about the spiritual part of the program, I found they would not believe me unless I was practicing what I preached. Then I found that as I gave in to this spiritual or personality change, I was getting a little more serenity. In telling newcomers how to change their lives and attitudes, all of a sudden I found I was doing a little changing myself. I had been too self-sufficient to write a moral inventory, but I discovered in pointing out to the new man 
his wrong attitudes and actions, that I was really taking my own inventory, and that if I expected him to change, I would have to work on myself too. This change has been a long, slow process for me, but through these later years, the dividends have been tremendous. In June 1945, with another member, I made my first and only 12-step call on a female alcoholic, and a year later, I married her. (gasps) Naughty boy. She has been sober all the way through, and for me, that has been good. We can share in the laughter and tears of our many friends, and more important, we can share our AA way of life and are given a daily opportunity to help others. In conclusion, I can only say that whatever growth or understanding has come to me, I have no wish to graduate. Very rarely do I miss the meetings of my neighborhood AA group, and my average has never been less than two meetings a week. I have served on only one committee in the past nine years, for I feel that I had my chance the first few years and that newer members should fill the jobs. They are far more alert and progressive than we floundering fathers were, and the future of our fellowship is in their hands. We now live in the West and are very fortunate in our area AA. It is good, simple, and friendly, and our one desire is to stay in AA and not on it. Our pet slogan is, easy does it. And I still say that as long as I remember that January 8 in Washington, that is how long, by the grace of God as I understand him, I will retain a happy sobriety. That was good. I needed that. I uh, now realize, too, that the solution to my problem of my yucky feelings today is that I need to immediately engage in step 11. I'm going to go do my restorative yoga. That's how I meditate. And I sort of meditate and pray. So I think that's what I'm going to do, um, which is the next right thing for me. Because if I know I, I know if I jump into anything else, I won't settle myself. And the only thing that can settle myself is prayer and meditation. It's acceptance, which I have to accept everything that happened today and this weekend is as it is and could not have been any different. And now move forward into connecting with God, which means I connect with my deepest self, the part of myself that is connected to God through spirit. Uh, So thank you for spending this time with me, for listening to me, for being with me. I feel like it's a meeting every time I'm with you. I just want to say hi to Karen in Boston. I've been thinking of you. I hope to see you soon. And if you need to reach me for any reason or you want to give me a topic or tell me your sobriety anniversary coming up you can email me or lisa two sober chicks at gmail.com and then find us on instagram and twitter at two sober chicks stay safe we need you <laughs>